I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? The other is KPIs or whatever you want to call them, key performance Yeah. <laughs> I'll give that one chair one out of three. Maybe it works here and there, but um, I tend to think that if something is truly important, you can't sort of solve it by Brian Arthur is an economist and complexity thinker. He is best known for his work on network effects, locking markets into the domination of a single player. He is also one of the pioneers of the science of complexity, the science of how patterns and structures self-organize. He is a member of the Founder Society of the Santa Fe Institute and in 1988 ran its first research program. Brian is a legend in technology, economics, and understanding what will transpire in the future. This is a wide-ranging conversation for the innovators in all of us. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Brian, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well here. This is one I've really spent a lot of time researching, studying. Your work's fascinated me. So this is going to be a wide-ranging, complex conversation. But let's get started, actually, with something I've never heard you discuss. And, and I'm just interested about your day, some of the, the routine strategies, things that you've done throughout your career that you found success in. My idea of a very good day is to get a cup of coffee and a pretty large cup of coffee, sit down sometimes with a book. I'm often learning something or studying something or quite often writing uh, or maybe just chewing the end of a pencil and trying to think. Um, I think what seems to motivate me is I come up with questions, observations, uh, observe the world, and then I wonder how it could be that way or why it has to be that way. And for better or worse, rather than look for answers on the internet or Academically, I tend to try to puzzle them out for myself. So my day is typically wondering about something. <laughs> the magic of questions, the ability of our, ourselves to, to observe and think about those thoughts. I'm intrigued you men mentioned about picking up a book. How do you decide which book you might pick up and what ideas you might even spend the time on to explore? Oh, I think things just come to me that um, why should something be this way or that way? Then I wonder, for example, I'm wondering, I start to wonder what artificial intelligence really is. And fundamentally what it is, uh, I'm wondering what that's going to do to the economy or to jobs. And I tend not to pick up books at the start because I find that's like a short circuit. It's, um, I would rather play things through my imagination and see what I can explore into. Let me give you an example. I'm, I've noticed lately that science is shifting from expressing itself in equations 
much more to expressing itself in algorithms. Why should that be? <laughs> and so I, I start off with what appears to be a stupid question because very often these questions have the uh, one answer as well. Why shouldn't it be that way? You know, it's like asking, why is the sky blue? <laughs> Um, but very often it starts me in a train of thought, and I asked that question about three years ago. It's taken me three years of really figuring out what's going on in science or in algorithms. I'm curious about how systems evolve and unfold over time. I'm curious how things change over time. But not just this very, not just more of this and less of that. I'm very interested in how things form and change. And I think that's the main thing that's motivated much of my career. Is there a particular system, the, the evolution of that system, that you're most intrigued by and have been throughout your entire career? Not really. Um, I think I'm just fascinated by how systems change over time. I don't mean in history or archaeology. <laughs> I just mean in principle, how does, uh, if dinosaurs get wiped out, how does the overall system reassert itself without dinosaurs necessarily? Uh, what sort of a new regime are you in? So I guess I'm interested in how things form and how structures form, and how patterns form, and how patterns change. It's not a mystery. Um, you drive cars, if cars are dense enough on a freeway or on a highway, uh, we start to call that traffic, but traffic can pile up, traffic can get into traffic jams, and traffic can redirect what the cars are doing. If it's dense traffic, you slow down. I'm interested in an economy. I'm interested in technology. How, how does the whole collection of technologies change? How does a kid from, uh, from Northern Ireland, Belfast, how, how do you become intrigued with this and, and spend your life work doing this? <laughs> My... <laughs> I'll give you a smart aleck answer, I have no idea, but uh, yeah, I grew up in Northern Ireland in Belfast and um, that itself was an education um, I, because there was so very little change, at least when I grew up. Um, I don't know is my main answer here. I think that what I learned in Northern Ireland uh, was to observe. I was grew up on the wrong side politically. The I grew up as uh, Catholic, which wasn't a popular thing at the time in Northern Ireland. <laughs> so you learn to keep a low profile and just observe, and uh, things like army patrols, police patrols, all that sort of thing. Um, and also, um, from day one, I think I've just had a sense of wonder. Uh, I think that was built in. I met somebody about 10 years ago who knew me when I was age four, and she said, I used to sit on her knee, a family friend, she said, I used to sit on her knee and point to something and say, isn't it amazing? So I think I've just had a, a wonder uh, all my life. It's, it, some people are born that way. My hero in science is Charles Darwin. Somebody asked Darwin late in life, <clears throat> are you very intelligent, Mr. Darwin? And he had no real answer to that. You know, he was probably quite smart. Um, so... Are you um, very wise? Are you brilliant calculator? And finally, they said, you've, you've been very successful to what you attribute that. And he just, Darwin simply answered, I'm a man of enlarged curiosity. 
And I think I would love to be able to claim that myself. I think that I just wonder what keeps an airplane in the sky? <laughs> Why doesn't it fall down? Why should the earth be round? Uh, you know, these are questions that we all ask ourselves maybe at age 10 or age 8 or frustrate our teachers. But um, I was very fortunate to come back to Belfast that um, I had a first-rate education uh, there. There's a tradition in Ireland and in, especially in Northern Ireland and in Scotland there's a real tradition of education and it's down-to-earth education. It's um, a lot of it's science and engineering and this, that tradition goes on to today. So oddly enough, it's not a corner of the world you'd expect to have a lot of um, scientists, but, uh, but we were very well trained and rigorously trained and so, uh, Perhaps not with great imagination, but certainly technically trained. So, so then with this background, uh, I'm intrigued. What led you to the States? And I know you, you stopped off at Michigan first. How did that come to be? I think like most people growing up in Ireland at the time, this was in the uh, middle 1960s, quite a long time ago, or the late 60s, I was very well aware that uh, I needed to go abroad. There just wasn't that much happening in Northern Ireland or for that matter in the Republic of Ireland either. So I went for a year to England. That wasn't unusual either to do a master's degree. And, uh, but I found I couldn't quite take to England uh, I liked everybody I met, but I just felt it was quite a different culture. And um, it was quite formal. Uh, it, people were very smart, uh, but for some reason I just thought, like most, like many people growing up where I grew up, I thought I'd go to Canada. And I remember being in Canada as an undergraduate, um, age 19, and my great uncle took me to the tallest building in Toronto and up to the top floor, looking out over Lake Ontario, and he said, pointed across Lake Ontario, and he said, son, he said, over there's Yankee Doodle Land, he said, never go near it. <laughs> When I was in England, I asked my professor to uh, list down some universities that I ought to go to, and he was very methodical. So the first university he listed was Ann Arbor, which is where the University of Michigan is. And then the second one might have been Berkeley and then Caltech. And But I was lazy, so I only applied to the top one. <laughs> I went to Ann Arbor for uh, two years. I quite liked it, but it, and it was refreshing because in the 1960s, America was very much, very energetic and very positive. And this was just before they managed to put a man on the moon and science was king. I started to study um, mathematics seriously. And uh, <clears throat> but I found that the weather was terribly harsh in uh, the Midwest, at least a bit too warm in the summer and humid and too cold in the winter. <laughs> so I transferred to Berkeley in 1969, uh, basically on, largely on account of the weather. I went to the West Coast and with a few intervals, I've been in California uh, ever since. That's now over 50 years. Did you view going to the States and then even going from Michigan to Berkeley, did you view that as a risk at all? Not really. <clears throat> I think I belong to a generation where um, in the mid-60s, uh, just about everything that was happening culturally 
not everything, but a lot that was happening was coming out of the United States, including um, rock and roll and including all the things that, that happened, you know, California, the Beach Boys. There was a real cultural admiration for the U.S. And uh, clearly in terms of ideas and especially in terms of science and education and science, it was very clear to me that at the time it was the best in the world and possibly still is. Uh, and there are two universities right at the top. Uh, one was Harvard and the other was Berkeley. It was hard to choose between them. But uh, Berkeley was one of the top two universities at that time. And I felt very, very lucky to get to Berkeley to do a PhD. You felt lucky to be there. How did you differentiate yourself while you're there? From? From the other students. I, oh. I even know because you end up at McKinsey. So you must have been doing something right. <laughs> so we, we've got a young college listener. I'm wondering what, what they could take away from this. <laughs> I went to McKinsey, actually, from Ann Arbor, Michigan, because one of my professors there knew one of the senior partners at McKinsey, and I was very much directed to go there. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time with McKinsey. I was there for two summers. Uh, I learned a huge amount because um, in business, the problems really mattered. It wasn't academic. You you could rethink something and save millions or not say billions of dollars if you did things right. So that was intriguing. Berkeley was a sort of funny place in contrast to that. It was full of street people at the time, uh, called these hippies, um, Hare Krishna uh, people, <laughs> people uh, high on drugs, you know, can you tell me where the free clinic is? And uh, and it was very left-wing. Um, I found that uh, when I left Belfast in 1969, the British Army had just moved in. And I couldn't wait to get out of there. And so when I went to Berkeley uh, about two months later, I thought, this is freedom. I don't have to put up with the army and soldiers, but actually Berkeley was in upheaval over the Vietnam War. And uh, Ronald Reagan had sent in the National Guard and the Alameda County Sheriff's Department was there too. So I was going from one, I don't know if I'd call it a war zone, but one zone of chaos chaos and upheaval Belfast to another one, Berkeley, uh, where there wasn't that much difference. I, I found I wasn't caught up in politics, not because I don't care, but I, I wanted to get away from that sort of thinking. I wasn't looking to discover some ism. I wasn't looking <laughs> to be arrested. I had had... Uh, I had had my brush with politics because it was in your face all the time in Northern Ireland. And I was just glad to get some peace and quiet, but that wasn't exactly available in Berkeley. When I was there in 1970, <clears throat> a few months after I arrived, Nixon invaded Cambodia. And if I recall, the University Berkeley shut down for five months uh, in protest. The university closed, there were no classes, no teaching. And I didn't go to Berkeley to be political. I went to Berkeley to get away from all of that. So um, I can't recall what I did, but I think I spent a lot of time studying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm sure plenty of the Berkeley students can't recall what they did during those five months, but uh, I'm sure plenty, <laughs> plenty weren't studying. <laughs> well, there's, there's a saying, uh, you can recall the 60s, you were not part of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I, I'm intrigued to know a little bit more about, about the two years you spent with, with McKinsey and just, is this the first time you saw complex situations and being able to observe that in the real world? Yes, um, Seb, about that. Um, it was an interesting time, this 1969 and 70. So again, decades ago, McKinsey, the background was that Americans uh, were not just preeminent in science, but also in business. There had been a lot of thought about business, a lot of new ideas with uh, Alfred P. Sloan, General Motors, different ways of doing things. The Americans had come to Europe and been decisive in winning the Second World War. The Americans at the time were putting a man on the moon. So America had enormous prestige. McKinsey and company were coming into Europe at the time. They had just opened an office in Dusseldorf, uh, one and only office in Germany. I was sent there because I could speak uh, some German or quite a bit of German. And so <clears throat> McKinsey was interested in bringing ideas of rationalizing business, of sorting out business, of getting things better organized. German companies had got large after the war. And so this is 25 years or so after the war, Germany had bounced back. Uh, the very large companies like um, Deutsche Bank or BASF, huge companies, and there was um, an opening for McKinsey to help these companies think strategically, help break them possibly into profit centers like had been done in the United States with General Motors. And so I was very much um, part of that, or at least I was there observing and seeing all of that. What I liked about McKinsey, and I think it's been pivotal in my approach later, was what McKinsey was doing at the time was to go into really complicated situations. And they, at the time, uh, certainly they were not offering cookie cutter solutions or trying to shoehorn companies into specific types of solutions. They were looking at a company they might spend months and try to figure out, uh, here's how the company really operates, here's where the profits are really coming from, here's what really counts, here's how it organi it's organized and things like that. And they'd take quite a long time to get a really good grasp on that. And then after they had done that, they interviewed and interviewed, of course, all along the way. But the solution or set of solutions, more like set of strategies to move forward, would, if you understood enough about the company, would become fairly obvious. And rather than impose that on the company, McKinsey was able to present those ideas as perfectly logical way of thinking about how to move in the future. So what I learned from McKinsey was a taste for going into complicated situations, learning enough about them until I was confident I knew how it worked in great detail, and then seeing what was obvious and what needed to be done. And I think that I developed a taste for looking at complicated problems and trying to not see them academically or not see them as simple, but opening up in a way to the complicatedness of something and then allowing yourself a way to move forward when it became obvious what to do. Yeah, it seems like a reoccurring theme or almost buzzword here is observation and observe. And it seems like you were really stepping back, observing, and instead of implementing a, a set strategy or framework on top, you, you let it emerge through time and, and exploring. Is that what you were doing? Yes, very much so. 
Um, I'm not sure I learned that at McKinsey, but I certainly <laughs> learned the value of it at McKinsey. They had a, yeah, there's an awful lot of sitting around on the edge of desks, a small team and people throwing in ideas and debating, well, if this has happened, then that we would expect to see that. And somebody would say, okay, let's go out and check that. It was more like uh, the approach of a really good detective uh, squad than trying to impose something. Uh, I don't want to overclaim here, but that's what I got out of it. And yes, I think that my, if I have a method in research, it's to observe and inquire, to, uh, yeah, and then allow something to operate. I want to skip forward here. Uh, so hold the thought, I'll come back to it. But just as a footnote, I don't know if you've ever heard of anything called the U process. U process? I don't think I have, no. Okay, well, you might want to Google it, but uh, capital U process. But um, it's popular these days in business. And um, so around 1998, 99, I was asked by Fast Company magazine, it was fairly new at the time, Fast Company, um, how managers should make decisions. And I said, well, if it's not that important a decision, it's highly quantified, you can use logistics or mathematics or logic. Uh, but it was highly, very complicated, interwoven, thorny, knotted set of things. Um, back away a bit and then just observe like crazy and observe, observe, observe and then give your time, your subconscious time to sort that out and then you can allow um, some thing that you need to do about it to surface. But if you force that, you will come prematurely to um, a rather simplistic solution that may not be appropriate. Once you see what needs to be done, you can resurface fairly quickly and implement that. So I think, again, it's another expression. By the way, that uh, uh, by a guy called Otto Scharmer and Joseph Jaworski, uh, they uh, refined that set of ideas in their own words and in their own terms. And uh, that's become very popular uh, in business uh, with tens of thousands of people uh, in many, many countries following this sort of thing. I did not initiate that. I, the answer I gave in uh, Fast Company magazine, as I said, if, if the decision is complicated, fundamental, and important, then observe everything you can about it, and then back away and allow us the conclusion to arise, then you can implement it pretty quickly. And Jaworski saw this uh, little piece in Fast Company and uh, wanted to meet me, and so that's where they got this idea. Um, and they acknowledge that. I'm not trying to overclaim anything. I'm just saying that I think this observing things uh, is terribly important. One of the things in business, are, there's two approaches that I don't particularly like. One is an emphasis on quick decision making. You know, I'm the CEO, come to me, what should we do? Should we expand into China or not? Or something quite important. It's not a good idea to come up with quick decisions. It is a good idea to just draw back and, and do a lot of observing and thinking and consulting about it. Um, the other is KPIs or whatever you want to call them, key performance indicators. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll give that one one cheer out of three. Maybe it works here and there, but um, 
it's not, I tend to think that if something's truly important, you can't sort of solve it by quick decisions. It has to just emerge. Yeah, I think if I do have a method, I never thought much that I had any method. It was, it's more to think about things, observe them, and go really slow and then see um, what presents itself. I think my method of doing research is basically sleuthing, gathering evidence, trying to figure out why things ought to be, and then coming to a conclusion. Once, you, once you've come to a conclusion, then you can very quickly follow up the implications. I, I would love to just get inside your head for a second. When you're spending 12 years thinking through this, what does that process look like for you internally? Are you mapping things out in your head? Are you just putting things down on paper? What is that actual process like? I think I was just generally, generally curious about technology. I'd studied engineering for four years and I did very well in the exams and so on. But uh, the end of four years, I wasn't sure I knew what engineering was or technology. I mean, this sort of half philosophically. And I got fascinated. I've been fascinated all my life about technology. That's why I studied engineering. And I started to wonder where new technologies like the jet engine have come from. And I, I don't think that any researcher, you know, I see myself as a researcher and more than a teacher or a scientist or whatever. I'm, I'm trying to figure out things usually. Then I, so I was wondering where do, where do radical new technologies come from? You say it comes from genius, but that doesn't explain anything. Or, and so I, you don't take up projects like that unless you start with one or two ideas. And it had become obvious to me that new technologies were put together from existing ones. There are combinations of technologies that went before. So if I looked inside any technology like a, like a jet engine or for that matter, a, an early computer, I'd be seeing pieces that already existed. Jet engines have compressors uh, to pump up the pressure and the air they take in. They have combustors, all of those things already existed, and they have turbines to drive the compressor to pump up the pressure. And so all these things were well known. What uh, was new about a jet engine was putting them together in a different way. Um, that seems, if that seems very deep, it's not very deep because the only way to solve the problem is to construct an answer from the pieces that you have at hand. So I began to see this pattern again and again, and I got curious about technology, and I decided pretty formally that I would, uh, if I was gonna write a book on this, I would study about 20 to 30 technologies and know them really, really well. And of those, I would know about a dozen extremely well. So like the coming of the computer, possibly vacuum tube radio, I've been trained as an electrical engineer, radar is another one. Um, polymerase chain reaction in molecular biology. And so I started to really study these things. I thought it would take me two or three years. In the end, it took uh, 12 years. But at the end of it, I it was like somebody deciding around 1800 or 1820 that they wanted to know how biology operated. And so they started to study animals particular animals and figure out what did they have in common and how did they operate and where did they come from and how did they differ. So at the end of the 12 years, I wouldn't say I know everything about technology, but I knew an awful lot more 
than I did when I started, and I started to notice common patterns, that all technologies use certain use phenomena. And I noticed also that most of the things I was observing hadn't been observed, or at least hadn't been written down. And so it was a thrill. I decided I would write down what I was seeing again and again. So what I was really seeing was repeating patterns and then trying to describe those and how they operated and eventually how new technologies came about and were constructed. And I brought the book out in 19, sorry, 2009. I started in 1997. So it did take about 12 years, <laughs> but I've never regrets. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So this was one of those those moments of intense intellectual excitement, right, for you? Yeah, it was. Um, I think it's extremely, if you're lucky in research, um, you can observe certain things and then you get these moments where you say, oh, okay, so that's how that works. Wow. And then you notice that nobody else has observed that. And then... Uh, generally speaking, I can't solve problems on the spot. Um, maybe some people can. If I can cook up a problem, how does this operate or how does that operate? I can't generally solve that. It takes me two or three years. So my metaphor is that I, if, if, I, if there's a medieval city I'm trying to occupy to solve the problem, I just camp outside it. <laughs> and then three years later, the drawbridge comes down. People bring out tea and sandwiches and, tea and sandwiches and come on in, it's all yours. <laughs> so there are other people who could go in with a Sherman tank and, or whatever, you know, they could go in with a battalion and flatten the walls, but I'm not one of them. I think that. Uh, you need to wait and and figure those sorts of things out slowly. You mentioned a lot about patterns, and I know you know that I'm, I'm very intrigued by this and fascinated. And I even know when you were younger and you'd be on an airplane, you'd sit at the window just to observe the, the patterns that you'd fly over. So is this just an inherent trait you've always had, your your ability to to pick up on patterns? Yes, I think so. I've, I, I'm fascinated by any sorts of patterns, visually especially. Um, it doesn't mean I can always understand how they operate um, or how they come into being, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in observing things and the most interesting things to observe are ones that are not that simple but not too complicated or chaotic. So it's like landing from Mars and you wonder, oh, wow, there's mountains. How did that happen? And so you might think about that for a long time. Geologists did. I'm, just, I'm interested in how things come into being, how they form and how patterns form. Uh, Sometimes we'd say how they self-organize. And uh, I was lucky that science is turning more to that rather than say how things are uh, as we did more 200 years ago. You know, how, do, how does this organism work? How do the bones of a hippopotamus differ from, say, that of a whatever? rhinoceros or something, science has come to ask, how did things form? Where did whales come from? Uh, you know, they're clearly, uh, as far as I know, they're mammals and they swim in the ocean. They came from the land. How did that happen? So science is much more interested these days than before in how did things come to be? And that's really what's fascinated me. So how things came to be, I would love for you to dive deep on 1979 
and, and, and just the impact that had, what that timing looked like for you. And I'd love if you could even set the framework about just how you started reading up on molecular biology at the time and, and just the overall excitement and, and what was going on in your life at that time. Oh, um, <clears throat> yeah, I was working in the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in uh, Vienna. It was a U.S.-Soviet think tank. And um, I kept getting sent to the what was then the Soviet Union. And, uh, but also elsewhere in Europe. There was a book that came out in 1979 called The Eighth Day of Creation by Horace Freeland Judson. And he was um, documenting and um, how molecular biology in the 1950s had got itself organized and how characters like Francis Crick and Jim Watson and others, uh, Sidney Brenner, um, had, had a major hand in figuring that out over one or two decades and on into the 70s. Much later, in fact, more recently, I got to know Sidney Brenner really well uh, because he lived in Singapore. And so that was like touching <laughs> the creation itself. <laughs> Brenner had been part of this in the 1950s and 60s. He was in his 90s. So I was very interested. I think the main effect that that book had on me in 1979 was that I realized that biology, I'd, I'd had a very impoverished education when it came to biology. It just seemed to me to be collections of species and here's how this operated and here's how that operated. Here's how dragonflies can fly with two sets of wings, this kind of stuff. But what molecular biology was showing me was an incredibly complicated but highly mechanistic world at the molecular or atomic level where things were playing out in conjunction with other things and structures were being created. And it was recent, it was only in the previous 30 years or so that in 1979 that people had begun to understand the mechanisms of molecular biology. And this was all still very fresh. Many of the protagonists were still alive. And I was reading about this and it just seemed very dramatic to me. So contrast that with economics. When I'd been at McKinsey, I was interested in how economies work. And I went back to Berkeley and uh, what was presented to me in Berkeley was that economies are basically represented by equations. And if you wanted to get an economy working better, you needed to understand the equations. It was like a gigantic power station. If you knew how to adjust this, then that would follow. And <clears throat> it didn't show that much insight now, it seemed to me that as I read biology, um, biology was full of these mechanisms that would switch each other on and off, uh, many mechanisms. So in sunlight, for example, uh, in springtime, might fall on some bud, and that might cause certain molecular reactions for the bud to open up. Uh, the temperature would have to be right and sunlight would have to be right, etc. So what I was seeing in biology was complicated mechanisms that were highly interactive. In the economy, it was presented to us, at least in graduate school, um, that the economy was just a collection of firms or companies 
and they weren't so much interacting, they were just producing things. And then what was produced, whether it would be beer or trampolines or something, somehow came to some kind of an equilibrium where the demand for them at those at the prices that were getting charged uh, equaled supply, a bit like a spider's web, everything, all the forces held in tension, but in an equilibrium. And yet, <clears throat> here in Silicon Valley, I wasn't yet in Silicon Valley in 79, but the economy, it seemed to me, was much more like an ecology. Firms weren't coming in, uh, they hadn't existed forever. They weren't sort of, everything wasn't in equilibrium. New things would happen. Uh, new technologies would come along. And there wasn't so much a fight for survival, although that was part of it. But it was things coming and going and maybe quite a, a complicated set of interactions. And so biology seemed to me to be a better metaphor for the economy or ecology was a good metaphor and uh, as opposed to just seeing this as an application of 19th century physics that there are all these forces that were held in equilibrium so biology reading that had a huge effect on me and uh, i'd become very interested anyway um, in Berkeley, so well before 1979, on what happened when there were positive feedbacks in the economy or increasing returns. Um, and that was the early work I did from, I suppose, a more biological point of view. Is it true on uh, November 5th, 1979, in your notebook, uh, at the top of the page, you wrote economics old and, and new? And you, yes, that's true. <clears throat> I still have the notebook. Do you really? Yeah, I have the notebook, and <laughs> I have uh, it exists, and it's absolutely true. I was in Vienna at the time, and I'd been studying economics very hard. That was 1979, November. Yeah. Yeah, November 5th, I think. What happened was that I, um, I read an article by Ilya Prigozhin uh, in June 1979, where he was talking about positive feedbacks and he was talking about emergent patterns. So if you have a bunch of not very smart individual um, insects, uh, termites say, for some reason, they have built-in rules of interaction where they can build elaborate termites' nests. So that would be an instance of patterns forming from rather simple rules. And I read that, I was quite mesmerized, and I started to realize that I can't remember now what I wrote in the notebook, but it's easy enough to find out. And, and I noticed when I went back and looked at that recently, by the way, there was a lot of population or demography in that because at the time I was a demographer. Um, and I complained that there wasn't age. The age dimension wasn't included in the economy. But um, yeah. So I so in November I just sat down quite impatiently and I I remember in pencil drawing a line saying old economics new economics and um, I just wrote down in two columns how they would differ. For example, um, the old economics would be based largely on physics and on standard mechanisms, fairly simple ones, the new economics, in my opinion, would be based more on a biological concept and it would be more organic as opposed to just purely mechanistic. Organic meaning that 
what was there already could affect uh, what was happening. There would be uh, equilibrating forces or negative feedbacks in the old ec economics, but the new economics would allow positive feedbacks. The larger that um, originally that Facebook gets, the more you need to be on Facebook as opposed to MySpace, whatever that was, 2005 or something. So um, it seemed to me there were a lot of contrasts. The remarkable thing was that I didn't think this up. I'd be happy, by the way, to uh, find that notebook and uh, Xerox a few pages if you're curious. Yeah, it, please do that. And if you're ever going to throw it out, please do not. You could, you could send it to my house. Please never throw that notebook out. <laughs> Well, I'm old enough now to wonder what's going to happen, you know, uh, when I die. And, uh, I think I'll find a historian of economic thought. Yeah, <laughs> somebody like that. But the interesting thing was what what was strange about that was that nearly all that I noted down there actually came to pass in economics. That is, economics now is much more biological. It, it embraces the idea of an ecology. Uh, I, there are things I didn't foresee, like the massive role of computing. Uh, but to a large degree, I wouldn't say I nailed it, but I came about as close as anyone could be in 79. I, I just didn't see how to make all of this work. You know, it's easy to envisage a kind of promised land, um, and but hard to see how you would fully get there. And that's really been a quest for a lot of the rest of my life since then. Yeah, I'd love to get your take with regards to feedback loops and, and how smaller companies seem to last longer than these, these big companies. What's the reasoning for that? What I became fascinated with, actually, originally in grad school in Berkeley, when I was studying economics, uh, everything happened under diminishing returns. So if something gets ahead in the economy, there's more and more and more coal mined, then it, you're mining into veins where it's harder to reach coal eventually. Things get more costly or um, and similarly if there's more and more uh, hydroelectric sites used um, then you come into dam sites that aren't as advantageous all the good ones have been taken and so there's diminishing returns so there's sort of negative feedback the more you push something the harder it gets and this uh, gives you a balance normally. Uh, if you want that more mundane terms, you know, the, the more um, movies you see in, in the theater, the, the less attract, you exhaust all the good ones and start to run into the ones you haven't seen. Similarly with television shows that you're um, watching, and so eventually there's a balance between going out to the movies and watching things on television. That's what economists had taken for granted happened all over the economy. But I began to observe that occasionally there were positive feedbacks of something got ahead and we could further ahead. So it was pretty clear to me that if um, everybody was using Microsoft products, now this was about 1980 or 83, 84, then I would have to do the same if everybody was using um, IBM and DOS as a system, I would have to do the same. Um, so I began to realize that if there were say five or six or 20 alternatives, one alternative might just get more users. It would benefit from what we now call network effects. So something might arise just 
serendipitously for no particular reason, but if it takes off, it'll get more adherence and yet more adherence, and uh, pretty soon it dominates and shuts out everything else. And I wrote that up and developed the theory of that in 19, uh, in the very early 80s. Uh, I wrote a paper on that in Vienna, actually, sent it to many journals. It was not publishable. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't get published for six years. Finally, it got published in a top journal in 1989. But people were saying that's not economics. I was basically saying that if search engines start off like Alta Vista or uh, whatever else, Google and others start off all at the same time, if one gets ahead, if everybody's using that, you'd be more inclined to use that. You'd know how to use it. You know how it operates. Your friends would be using it, and so it could lock in and dominate. And by the way, that paper uh, was turned down by four top journals and finally published in a top journal. And um, maybe people were hoping it would be forgotten, but... It, it's gone to over 10,000 citations, which makes it a classic. <laughs> and it certainly does. And my attitude to that is sort of... <laughs> I'm thumbing my nose at the reviewers and you can't see, so... I mean, you, you've been through it all in, in, in terms of tech, so I'm intrigued to hear about which companies throughout history have you been most impressed with? I don't have an easy answer for that because, you know, I would interpret your question almost as saying, which do you think are the best strategists? And that I think that <laughs> over time in terms of locking in markets, uh, Amazon and uh, Microsoft might be excellent. In terms of real technology and caring about the technology, um, in the old days, at least then, I would say uh, Apple and Hewlett-Packard and possibly uh, uh, a decade or two ago, Boeing and companies like that. Uh, there's a difference. Some, some tech companies care a lot about the actual technology. Uh, some um, care about grabbing users. The genius of Steve Jobs was that Jobs is basically not so much an engineer, but a, a designer, and he understood how to get superb products uh, into the hands of consumers who wanted them. But he also understood how to get the engineers to produce those. And that's a tough thing to do. And I don't think that's often replicated in tech. But the genius of Silicon Valley is that it's kept reinventing itself every couple of decades. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you taking that question and, and running with it and, and just walking through almost your thought process. It's very cool to, to hear you discuss that, being there for, for so many different things. But what about right now? What's really capturing your attention the most? When I wrote that book on technology, it fascinated me that every so often a new set of technologies would come along, not a new single technology, but a whole set of technologies might come along. And what fascinates me is that if a set of technologies is deep enough, meaning if it's going to make an enormous change, it's not just like that one technology comes along and a company adopts that, it's not. It's that you could say the overall economy, every company, every entrepreneur, or every small firm or large firm doesn't adopt the technology it encounters it. 
So there's a massive encounter between the new technology. But the bottom line I would say in this is that we're moving into a new era. And as with climate change, we're not spending anywhere near enough attention in thinking about what lies in our future. It may be wonderful, it may be bad, but one way or the other, we as human beings have created artificial intelligence, machine learning, all these new technologies, and we're not thinking too much about how it will affect us, and we should be. So, so I'd love to get your take maybe here as a, a final part. If you got advice for someone young listening to this, how do they understand what's coming and how can they best prepare for that type of environment? Well, the best I can, you can see I'm stumped, but the best I can do is come up with one or two cliches and say that I think the best defense against a rapidly changing environment is uh, to get a really good education um, and, if possible, a technical one, but knowing that um, whatever you learn, be it in engineering or even in medicine, may be outdated uh, quite rapidly. So we all need to stay flexible. I think a lot of institutions are going to change. I think it's highly likely that, you know, we now have university-type ed university education or uh, in our uh, early 20s or late teens. That need not be the case later on. So I think uh, to stay adaptive and flexible would be my first thought. Um, but uh, I don't have any advice except to stay vigilant <laughs> and uh, just watch what's coming. Uh, I sense that's a bit of a lame answer. Uh, what I would like to see is um, when things like that are, when things are coming along that are going to change the economy, they will change society too. And I wouldn't want to say any job is immune. It's not just that jobs will change. The overall structure of everything is likely to change. And how we fit in, is yet to be determined. I think that we're moving rapidly from an economy that is dominated um, by the whole idea of producing more uh, to an economy where what really counts is who gets what, who gets the ability. It, it's funny where we started is with with how you start your day and, and the questions you'll sit down and, and wrestle with. And I, I really, just looking at my notes right now, I feel like myself and the listeners are going to have a lot of questions that, that we need to think through uh, and can help understand. And then something I just need to highlight is just how much you talked about the ability to sit back and observe and not make such quick decisions. I think that's a, a lasting takeaway for me. So I appreciate you bringing those up. If you want the listeners staying more connected with you, we're going to have your books linked up, your research papers as well. Anywhere else you think they should be going to just stay connected with you? My home base is Santa Fe Institute. At the moment, I'm in Stanford. I'm spending a year at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. That's literally where I am, looking down on the Stanford campus up the hill a little bit here. No, for better or worse, I don't produce a blog. Uh, it should be pretty clear that what I like to do is just chew the end of a pencil or something, as opposed to trying to keep followers happy. I don't have Twitter or, <laughs> or, or a blog. I'm not against that. It's just not, not my personality. I do have a website and... Uh, I'm sure you've taken a look at it or you could take a look at it. I'd be happy to have feedback on it. But I, I notice I don't spend that much time on that. Um, 
I'm looking for an analogy here. I'm like a hunter, I think, who likes to be out there hunting game, (laughs) not not putting it on the wall. (laughs) I don't know that makes any sense to you. It makes perfect um, sense. And I, I'm happy you actually do do that because then you get to concentrate on the on the things that bring the most value to the most amount of people. This has been a, lo- a lot of fun. So I, I really do appreciate you spending this amount of time, uh, both of myself sure. and the listeners. So W. Brian Arthur, it has been an absolute pre- pleasure to feature you on What Got You There. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. I've enormously enjoyed it. Good luck to your listeners. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.